There are two basic motivating forces, fear and love. When we're afraid, we pull back from life. When we're in love, we open up to all that life has to offer with passion, excitement, and acceptance. Coming to you from our studio in Santa Barbara, California, this is the Fear Me Out podcast. We're not your typical self-help program. Our show takes a deep dive into those psychological issues that affect us on a daily basis. We hope to shift your perspective and have you experiencing emotions differently. Now here are your hosts, Kim Foskey and Dr. Dana Saperstein. As we continue our series on the importance of living an examined life, our in-studio guest today reached the pinnacle of sport before age 30 by winning an NCAA championship, three Olympic medals, which include two gold and a silver, numerous individual accolades, and is regarded as arguably the best woman to ever play her sport. However, this success hasn't easily translated into the rest of her life, including her transition away from sport. So please join us as we speak with Cammie Craig and find out more about the woman behind the medals. So Cammie, welcome all the way from Salt Lake City back to your hometown. Thank you. It feels really good to be here. Um, I was just kind of looking at uh, your athletic resume and your athletic accolades. And, and for those that don't know you or don't know of you, um, you're an NCAA national champion uh, from your days at USC. You're the only two-time Katino Award winner that is awarded to the top collegiate water polo player. And I'm assuming that is just like the Heisman Trophy of football. Yep, that's right. You're a three-time world champion. Um, you're in a Pan American Games champion. You're a three-time Olympian. Um, that's uh, two gold medals and, and one silver medal. And uh, I think Dana's a bit disappointed that you're not wearing those today. But uh, if we have you back for a future episode, maybe you can bring those and, and show them off to Dana. Um, and what we just found out, and, and congratulations to you, you're going to be inducted into the USA Water Polo Hall of Fame. In, in just a couple of weeks. Yes. So that is quite an honor. No, it's been it's been a phenomenal ride and, and an exciting life and a fun one. So we're not going to focus on, on your athletic career, but it'd be interesting to hear from you. Who was Cammie Craig the athlete? Yeah. Um, when I hear that, I think about just kind of how I was introduced into athletics. I'm the only athlete in my family. Um, and it really, my connection to movement and athletics was born out of um, being diagnosed with ADHD and, and dyslexia. And um, the doctors prescribing me with Ritalin and my mom choosing to open the bottle and pour it down the sink and decide that she was going to design my life in a way that helped manage my energy rather than allowing prescriptions to do that. Now prescriptions can be great for, for others. Um, that wasn't the choice that we decided. Um, but that is when it was kind of a full lean into, okay, how are we going to manage this energy? We're going to do it through movement and we're going to do it through sport. How did your mom become so bold to actually take that approach with you? I think, you know, I would love for her to answer that question. And the way that she shares it with me is she describes standing there and thinking, I'm going to give my daughter 
medication, and then I'm going to send her off to school without knowing the effects of it. And as she sat there and kind of processed, you know, really what what the effects could be and how it could potentially change me, um, she shares that she just looked at me and thought, I don't want to change you. I don't want to, um, you know, I, I, I want to find a way to manage this outside of, of taking medication. How old were you at this time? Um, I was three, four years old. Oh, wow. Yeah. So you're very young. Yep. Yeah. Three, four years old. And, um, the neighbor knew that I was a handful <laughs> and he had a pool in his backyard and he would uh-huh. say, you know, Dale, come up to the, to the house and let the kids go swimming. Um, and that was really where my love of water was born. Um, my love of movement was born. Um, it was a place where I could be loud. I could be energetic. I could be explosive. I could be strong. I could be all of those things. Um, and in, in true fashion, I tried every sport. I did volleyball, softball, basketball, swimming, um, and then eventually was introduced to my love, <laughs> water polo. Um, I always say I retired with a really great relationship with water polo, uh, a great relationship with my experience and my teammates and coaches. Now, does that mean it was perfect? Absolutely not. But um, I have a, you know, a really good relationship with, with that experience. Um, and so who is Cami the athlete? Um, I think it was really born out of a need and necessity for, for energy management. And again, it was a place where I could feel whole and most like myself where areas like school, I felt, you know, boxed in, I felt, um, like, you know, I had to be quiet. I had to behave a certain way. Um, and sports, you could just be all out. What, what probably is your biggest takeaway from being an athlete? Yeah, I think, you know, it's interesting in starting athletics at such a young age, um, like everything kind of has blend together. Like a part of who I was and my identity was an athlete. Um, and that showed up in a lot of different ways in my life outside of a playing field or practice. Right. Um, my greatest takeaway, I think, you know, I, I grew up with these learning differences, right? Um, and I think those really built the resilience and uh, the intuition, the work ethic, the creativity, and the resilient courage. Like that was built in the classroom in having to um, learn, figure out and overcome the challenges of having learning differences of ADHD and dyslexia. And, um, it's amazing how much that contributed to my athletic career and how I could apply those same things that I had to learn in the classroom easily to how I showed up as an athlete, you know, being an athlete, it takes resilience work ethic, you know, all the things that I just named, intuition, creativity, courage, all of those things. Um, And I would say that in who I am really kind of overlapped. If I'm thinking strictly about what did I take away from being an athlete is just like a a handful of incredible friends and teammates. 
uh, the ability and opportunity to travel the world and see outside of just where I came from. Um, uh, education at the University of Southern California. Um, the repetition and learning people, understanding people. How do you bring teams together? Um, a wealth of knowledge, um, experience, and connection. Usually people with learning disabilities don't have high levels of confidence. Mm -hmm. You became an elite athlete, which takes a lot of, uh, a tremendous amount of self-confidence to, to uh, achieve what you achieved. How did you, how did you get there? Um, I think that, again, it was like almost when I got to the pool, I was like walking through a threshold, like, that was my zone, you know, that's where I felt most comfortable in the water. And again, it's, it's so interesting. I was reflecting on this recently is, you know, I'm, I'm a swimmer, I'm a water polo player and I was constantly in a bathing suit. So, you know, even like we think about young women growing up and like body confidence and you're talking about emotional confidence and just self-confidence in general, but you know, I've never like thought about my body as an athlete, it always had a purpose. It was used as, you know, a certain, it had a, it, it had a meaning and a purpose. It was not about how it looked or how it portrayed to others, as long as it was in the water doing what it need to do. Um, I was happy. Um, and I think I was so like welcomed and received as who I felt I was at, at the pool and on the playing field that, um, there was a certain confidence that I got to meet, um, at the pool versus like, I didn't have to bring it. It was there waiting for me. Um, and I think, you know, growing up with learning disabilities and differences is like, it's brutal. Like I still feel uncomfortable or vulnerable or the doubts sneak in and I have to pump myself up. Right. You know, that's, that's a wound of just like not feeling enough or smart enough or good enough. Right. And, um, that's been a challenge, but I think, you know, the acceptance of who I was and my strength and my outgoingness and my loudness and all of that was really accepted in the pool and never felt like a place that I couldn't just show up wholly. So none of, none of those followed you. We were talking about kind of that lack of confidence a, a, a bit there. None of those followed you into sport at all? Sure. I mean, sure, doubt, fear, nerves, all of that shows up in sport um, and, and followed me in different ways. And even like the the just kind of discomfort and having to share with a coach or a teammate like, hey, I, I need you to use a whiteboard or like, you know, um, can you tell me like what post this is? Cause I'm all flipped backwards. I'm dyslexic, you know? And so really right away, I mean, when I talk about like, uh, my learning differences, creating intuition, like I could feel who was going to be helpful and I could call in help like nobody's business. I didn't care about asking for help. I was like, yes, please help me. And so I would find, you know, the teammate that knew all of the plays like the back of her hand. And I would say, okay, like, I know the play. You can trust me. You can count on me. But there's going to be a moment in the game where like, 
I'm going to be flipped and I'm going to pause and I'm going to look at you and I'm going to need you to tell me where I need to go and I'll know everything I need to do from there. And it was almost like this verbal contract that I would sign with a teammate on almost every team that I've been on. It was never the same person, but I'd find that person and who was going to be my, my helper. Right. Um, and she'd be like, yeah, I got you. And there was no, again, except there was acceptance there and there was no judgment. And I didn't lose any sort of, um, like leadership or, or, you know, I wasn't viewed as weak or less than, um, it was like, okay, this is like, this is, um, you know, a place where you're not as strong and I got your back. Um, and so for sure those insecurities or doubts or lack of confidence came into play. Um, and I had the privilege and pleasure of being on a team where I could speak, share, advocate, and start kind of patching together the places I didn't feel so strong. What age did you start trusting your intuition? I think probably much earlier than I would um, have been able to recognize. And do you remember why you did that or how that felt or... or because it, it it's it's one of those things that Dana and I talk quite about a bit about um, intuition being your best trusted navigator mm -hmm. in, in life, and you know our ego is always trying to override our intuition, and and it was something that I the intuition was something that I felt early on in life, even though I couldn't put my finger on it mm -hmm. as well. So it's interesting to talk to other people that that had that intuition feeling early in life and then kind of went with it, even though they didn't know what it was. Right. And I feel like, you know, intuition was uh, developed and created and born out of this like necessity to survive. <laughs> right. Um, and just, again, the intuition was like, I had to read the room because I couldn't read the paper. You know, I'm like, I'm supposed to be doing something right now. I'm not fully understanding the direction. So I'm going to like just notice everything around me. I was meant to leave class, my, my normal class to go to resource class at a certain time each day. And I had to read a hand clock and I didn't know how to read a hand clock. That was one of the things that was a challenge through my dyslexia and like, like just being aware of like, okay, like when does like the class typically, you know, shift subjects? Like when are people moving in certain ways? Like who can I ask? Okay. I've asked you once. And if I ask you again, you're going to know, I don't know how to read the clock. Like I've asked you what time it is. And so then I'm going to shift to somebody. And it was just kind of like this, this pulse and awareness and intuition of, you know, how, how I needed to show up with not knowing all of the instructions, all of the facts are not knowing. And so I think that helped me kind of like get through these periods and times in, in the classroom, you know, that I needed to, to get through. Did anybody ever make fun of you? Did anybody notice? Oh yeah. They did. Yeah. So despite all the efforts you made to kind of cover it up, there were occasions when somebody noticed. Yeah. And I think, you know, um, it was less making fun, but there was a lot of people would notice. And I, I was, again, the amount of vulnerability that you experience so young is it's, it's painful. You know, I was yeah. embarrassed. I was mortified, um, that I wasn't at the same level as my peers and I had to create different skill sets and tools. I had little, you know, um, pieces of paper with like, you know, my phone number addresses, cheat sheets that I would keep in my wallet that I would have to take out if I was asked to fill out 
paperwork or things like that. It's really interesting. Um, when I was a little kid, which was, there were still dinosaurs around, um, <laughs> I couldn't spell at all. Yeah. And I would reverse numbers and letters, but there was no name for it. There was no um, discussion about it. And I was really lucky that, I, that I, I didn't necessarily use my intuition to help me. I used my memory. Mm. So I could get an A on any spelling test that ever came because I would yep. memorize the words. But if you asked me to spell the word the following week, I would have no idea how to do it because it wasn't a, <laughs> I'd never learned how to spell, but yes. I certainly learned how to memorize. And it, it, I, I, I'm, I'm learning a lot from you just in, in what you're saying, because I still get notices from the bank every time I get deposit. Mm -hmm. Could you please learn how to add before you send the next one in? Yeah. <laughs> right. right. And, and I, what they're asking is like, like, you know, you have, you have a difference, like you uh -huh. have a limp. Could you limp a little less, you know? And it's like, no, yeah. it's just going to always be there. I'm sorry. Like oh, uh, it doesn't go away. <laughs> I, I use my calculator. Yeah. I can get the same answer three times in a row. And it's wrong. Yeah, <laughs> so, <you> know, <laughs> so. I chuckle because you're in my club. Uh, yes. Welcome. You know, my, and my kids have always made fun of me because I, I, how do you spell that? Or how do you spell, because when I look at it, mm -hmm. I can't tell that that word is spelled correctly no matter what. But yep. there, there was no, any of this when I was a kid. Yep. It didn't that, exist. That must have been so. interesting when you wrote a PhD thesis then. Mm. Don't tell anybody, but my wife wrote it for me. <laughs> Everybody needs a support team. <laughs> That's right. I was smart enough to figure out that I needed to get involved with somebody else to do certain things yes. that, you know, yes. that, that I wasn't capable of, of doing. And luckily, she loved me enough that she could take my fourth grade writing skills and turn them into look like an adult. Oh my god. And it was gosh. very sweet. But I tell everybody that my wife wrote my dissertation. I'm sure. loving your story. My, my college boyfriend had a master's in writing. Yeah, he sweet. edited, overlooked, and helped, and <laughs> held my hand through yes. so many papers. Yeah, it's. I, I never. I've never really thought about this before because I. I, I mean, uh, the this kind of sensitivity that I believe that I developed as a result of, of knowing that I was really different, but not really understanding mm -hmm. why, is why I sit in the chair and do what I do. Yep. It, it helped me read people just like you're talking about. Yep. And then you, it's a, it's a, it's a way of sort of compensating for a deficit in a way that gives you a huge advantage actually over mm -hmm. most people because you figured out who to ask on the team to help you yep because some people wouldn't have helped you or they would have made fun of you or sure. may, maybe not so much on the level that you got to but generally speaking kids are not the most kind-hearted right. kind souls when it comes to somebody being a little bit different than, do, do you than think your observation skills were more enhanced absolutely by that and do you think that and again trying not to be an athlete show here but do you think that actually helped you be a better water polo player absolutely yeah a hundred percent and and again going back to talking about your intuition how much did your intuition contribute to your success overall do you think i think i mean i think it's a part of every decision we make you know um and so i I also think about the fact that I'm the first in my family to attend and graduate college. I'm the first to, I'm the only athlete. I'm the first to reach this level of athleticism. And I think about my mom and my dad and myself not knowing anything about anything, right? Like, you know, did we get the right bathing suit? Are we dropping you off at the right pool? Like what, like recruitment, um, college applications, um, you know, 
it just, it was all new to us and we would huddle. Like we were this team of three and we would huddle and, you know, like we would discuss like, wow, there's, there's an opportunity that you might be recruited to one of these top universities. And, and then we'd think, okay, let's figure out how we prepare and get ready for that. And there might be an opportunity that you make the junior national team. Wow. There might be an opportunity that you will be asked to train with the senior team. Wow. There's an opportunity that you might actually have the opportunity to go to the Olympics. I mean, this wasn't written, you know, I mean, it's not like I had a dad who was like a collegiate athlete and a mom who was a water polo coach. I mean, it was like, we were learning as we were going all the time and we were taking chances and risks based off of our intuition, based off of how my parents were supporting me, based off of like, do we take the chance? Let's go for it. Um, and I think, you know, looking back at that, I think that was intuitively guided. I think my mom throwing me in the pool at three rather than choosing to medicate me was an intuitive decision of hers. I think, um, you know, like, I had to show up in all of these spaces. It was like, these were new. They weren't thought of, they weren't premeditated. And I was like, okay, now I'm like in college. Now I'm trying out for my first Olympic team. Now I'm trying, you know, to win a national championship in a D1 league. I mean, it just constantly showing up and having to trust yourself. Um, and, and I forgot what you'd said. Um, the ego gets in the way of intuition for me. Definitely. I I find my fear can cloud my intuition greatly. It's less my ego that's present um, and, and knocking my intuition over, but rather my fear. So, Cammy, this begs the question. You're, you've retired from professional athletics, correct? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So uh, I'm just so curious about what your life looks like now compared to what it looked like then because, it, it, you know, you had such a strong um, uh, need and desire to accomplish what most people don't accomplish in a lifetime. Mm -hmm. And I'm not sure how old you are now. Do I'm 34. Ask? Okay. So how old were you when you retired from professional athletics? 29. I mean, that's really young to be finished with your first career. Absolutely. Right? Mm -hmm. I mean, that's when most people are barely, you know, trying to figure out what they want to do with themselves. So a, a career that reached many pinnacles. Yes. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, most people don't ever come close to what you've accomplished, but but that makes it even harder to figure out what to do next, doesn't yes. it? Yes, yeah. So I, I don't know you like Kim does. What does your life look like now? And, and what, where's all the energy going? And Yes. And, and what are you doing with it and all of that sort Great of thing? Great question. Where's all the energy going? Because I got a lot of it. I can tell. <laughs> um, I think, you know, I just want to lift up and acknowledge that like the first year and a half uh, to two years, even to five years out now, um, there has been moments of clunkiness, great challenges, um, high anxiety, depressive states, um, you know, that 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 had been experienced as um, there is a, a discovery process that's incredibly uncomfortable yeah. after leaving something that has morphed into your identity, you know, and I think everyone's like, you're an athlete. It's not your identity, but I'm like, man, if I didn't fully put myself into what I was doing, I don't know that I could feel confident that I was going to get my team and myself to the top of the podium. Like I was le leaving nothing out of the equation, right. like how I ate, slept, the thoughts I let into my mind, how I prepared myself, how disciplined I was. I mean, all of that was to, 
hold the dreams of a team um, and my own dreams. And so I'm like, I was all in. It was my identity. It was my life um, and everything that I did. Um, and so big transition, lots of clunkiness. Um, and I have experienced an incredible amount of failure in the classroom, in athletics. Um, and so I'm a little, I'm comfortable with failure. I'm comfortable in asking for help. I'm comfortable with starting again and being like, well, we just did a lot of work for nothing. Let's clean the slate and let's go again. I've got the, I've got the endurance and resilience to do that. Um, but what I was experiencing, I felt were micro losses. I felt like I was like trying on these identity jackets and like looking in the mirror. I'm like, that's a little tight on my shoulders. That doesn't fit right. Take that off. Or like, that doesn't look, you know, good on my back. So I got to take that off. Or these two, the sleeves are too short. And so I kept trying on these identity jackets and having to take them off and try them on and take them off. And every time something felt like it wasn't going to work, I, I was kind of coming to the conclusion that like, this isn't for me. This doesn't feel right. I was experiencing these losses. And so I was mourning and kind of grieving um, the big identity, you know, the the tries of what's next. Um, and eventually, to the more kind of upbeat of what's going on now, is I found a way to become more or less a professional teammate. So um, I was working in the fitness industry doing outside sales, and I was like, wow, I'm not motivated by money whatsoever. Um, I just want to be connected with people, um, and this is not my space. I knew within you know a few months of working in the company that our, our company was really ran by fear. It was a very fear-driven, and I could feel that. Like, Again, no background in corporate settings, first time having a what quote unquote real job. And I immediately could feel where we weren't aligned, what our challenges were going to be and what was going to be disruptive in this team setting, in this corporate setting that I was in. Um, realized that wasn't for me. Came out and I started working with a company called Rise Athletes where I mentor uh, youth athletes doing mental skill set training worked with over. I mean, this probably doesn't shake a stick at how many clients you've had over your life, but I'm pretty proud in the last five years of working over with over a hundred young female athletes, one-on-one -on, -one on mindset, confidence building, um, exploring their own identity. Who are they in the world? Asking powerful questions, um, and over in different 15 different sports. So not just water polo. Um, I also work for a company called Mindful Warrior, where I provide performance coaching and culture de design, which is essentially like, how do we bring the best out of you in your workspace and your performance? And culture design would be team building, right? So that feeling that I felt in my first corporate job, um, now I get to feel that for others and help navigate and create, you know, company morals, values, and direction. Well, that's pretty remarkable pretty fun it's as close to being an, an olympic athlete as, as you could get i would say right? so and again like I, I get to be a professional teammate i still get to connect mm -hmm. i still all the questions and the thought processes and the curiosities that came with getting to know each teammate on each team that i was on comes in the work that i'm doing now right. i want to know what scares you i want to know what motivates you i want to know your why i want to know you know what keeps you motivated what makes you pull back. I want to know all of these things because that's the power in being a teammate. You know, I wonder if you realize how different your approach is to, to most, because athletics is obviously a performance oriented mm -hmm. discipline. And most people are taught to disconnect from themselves in order to be at their best, not to feel what they're feeling. And you do like the exact opposite of what, what most people are, 
are encouraged to do. And yet you've accomplished more than, and what you're doing with your athletes mm. is really incredible because again, I occasionally get referred young people who are in athletics and um, mostly what they're taught to do is not feel. Mm. They're just taught to perform. Yeah. And, and what matters is, you know, the, how the coach feels, not how you feel. Right. And that if you're not performing adequately, you're going to be made to feel ashamed of yourself and made to feel like you're letting your team down, which again mm -hmm. is a fear-based way of motivating people, which I think is incredibly unhealthy and disrespectful. But that's just the way I think most teams are run, but I don't, I don't know if, as much as you do about that. But your approach is actually really, really different because it matters to you how people feel. Yes. And you want to teach them how to feel good about themselves and how to know themselves in a way of being really successful. Yeah, I mean, how do you perform at your best if you're only, if you're showing up half of who you are, a quarter of who you are? By objectifying yourself and treating yourself like an object. Yeah. That's how most people mm -hmm. do it. They don't let themselves feel what it's like. It's really hard for me to imagine a football player could let themselves feel what is happening to their body when they're sure. on the field. I mean, don't get me wrong. <laughs> right. There's a time where you numb yourself out to get through certain practices. <laughs> <That's what I laughs> <mean>. <laughs> for sure. But I think that's different than what you're talking about. It is different. Yeah. 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 It's really interesting to hear your approach in this way because mostly what I am trying to do in my work is the same thing you do, is to help people understand who they are mm -hmm. and not to worry so much about the performance aspect yes. of things because you're going to perform at your best if you're comfortable with who you are. Yes. And if you know yourself like you knew yourself, you knew what to do in order to uh, capitalize on your strengths and and get some help for your weaknesses. And that's not usually the way most athletic programs are run. Yeah. Yes. Is that true? I, I would agree. Yeah. And I think those are challenges and that I've ran up against. I think there are teams that I couldn't shake that uh -huh. kind of holding pattern that you're talking about. Uh -huh. Um, and I also started realizing too, like I've got to know myself and show up as whole as I possibly can in this process, but so do my teammates so that they're not running into fears or insecurities or roadblocks. Like as, as much as I can make myself comfortable in this space, I need to make my teammates feel the same way, warmed and welcome, belonging, trust, respect, all that stuff, inclusion, because if they don't, all of a sudden they are they're a risk in the process of getting to the top of the podium, right? Do you never met resistance for people that didn't understand what you were after or thought it was a yeah. sign of weakness to allow yourself to have your feelings along with your performance? Well, I have a beautiful example of a teammate and um, we competed in the 2012 Olympics together and she had left her university to be a part of the process. And every day was like, I don't want to be here. I'd rather be at school. I'd rather be at my sorority. Like, I don't want to be here. And it's like, you have the opportunity to train for the Olympic team. Like what an honor. But for me, it was clear, like, man, she's scared. She's scared of this, not going the way that she hopes for it to go to be all in is too much of a risk. And I can't, you know, I come with my energy. I'm like rocking a hundred miles an hour. I'm like positive cami. My teammates are like rolling their eyes at me. And like, there's not like, I irritated her the most <laughs> because she didn't want to be there. And I'm like, of course you do. It's awesome here. Look around. We're doing it. You know, just trying to find the positive side of that. And I think, um, I never gave up on her. It took me about eight to nine months to break through to her to say like, you know, like, okay, sure. You don't want to be here today, but like, we need you. 
and we trust you. And I didn't have full buy-in trust with her, but I knew she needed to know that I trusted her so that she could trust me back. I knew that she needed to know that she was welcomed and it was safe for her to lean in just a little bit more. I needed her to know that I didn't need her to be perfect, but I needed her to be committed. And so, you know, that was many lunches away from the pool. Um, it was many car rides to and from practice and talking. Um, and I was shocked. We were on a travel trip and she looked at, she was sharing with the team, the story of, you know, um, this was really hard. This process was really a hard one for me to commit to. Um, and Cammy's one person that never gave up on me and consistently checked in, um, until the point where I was like, okay, well, she's not going anywhere. She means well. And like, I can now open my heart to love and trust and, and connect. Um, and these are also women who were competing for a spot on the team with. So, I mean, it's, it's a crazy balance in the compartmentalizing that goes on in it, whether it's healthy or not, it happens, right? How many years from start to finish for water polo? Oh, 13 to 29. 13 to 29, 16 years. Yeah. Who'd you do it for? I mean, I loved it. I think, uh, I loved, I loved the water first of all. So I was doing swim team initially. And then I found the sport that like your head could be above water and you could talk to people, which I was like, awesome. <laughs> like I get to talk to my friends all day long. Um, but, uh, I think initially for me, the love, the love of water, the love of movement, um, getting to show up and be with my teammates every day. Like if they weren't there, I wouldn't have never done what I've done. I would have never accomplished what I accomplished without having those girls to look forward to knowing those girls toes are going to be on the edge of the deck before jumping in every morning. Um, and, and the fun of like reach, like setting goals and reaching them and refining and, you know, I mean, you're learning in the front end of, of your career. It's clunky. There's a lot of learning to do. And the back end of your career, it's refinement. You're seeing things you hadn't seen before. You're adjusting small things. You're able to, um, you know, I was able to have more attention on the team. I mean, my first Olympic games, it was like deer in the headlights, just survive and do your job and don't mess up. Um, by, you know, the second Olympics and third, I was very much like, what's the pulse of the team? What's the energy of them? What do they need? And even watching the Olympic games at home from the couch for Tokyo 2020, um, I competed with seven of the girls who were on that team. And it was like, there was a few challenges they faced, which by the way, being a spectator is far more difficult than being the player. Like there is no control in it. Right. Um, but you know, there was times where they hit some adversity and I was just like, my mind immediately went to like, okay, what is this? What is this teammate thinking? What is that teammate thinking? What's the bus ride like? What's the energy in the locker room? What is our head coach sharing? And, you know, I just kind of had a laugh and smile at myself as like, it's their journey. Like they, they're going to find their way through it. And they did. Um, but it was interesting to see what worries or thoughts popped up for me as I was spectating. And that to me clearly was my role when I was on there. It just kind of dropped right into that. So Dana touched a little bit on the transition from being a professional Olympic athlete to B 
being Cammy, the everyday citizen, not mm-hmm. being in the pool every day, not being in the locker room with the girls anymore, mm-hmm. not having the coaching, not having the, the training staff and, and so on and so forth. How did your life change from day one to now five years out? I like to say I'm five years old in this new life. It just kind of seems a little bit easier to give myself some grace in that um, when I put that perspective lens on. Um, but um, was there? I mean, there had to be an immediate loss of identity, right? Because if, absolutely. Because if, Google yourself right now. It, it's going to talk about Cami Craig, the athlete, still. Absolutely. Right? It's not going to talk about Cami Craig, the person. Mm-hmm. Right. And I find in different spaces, I'm like, ugh, like please don't just look at me as an athlete. And then in other spaces, I'm like, man, it'd be really nice if you could acknowledge me for the athlete that I've been, you know, it's just funny how different areas trigger different things. Um, but I think, and you had some other life changing events that happened at the same time. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, I, I broke up with a boyfriend of 10 years. Uh, I retired from yes, my team, my support staff, my community, um, my movement at such a high level. Um, you know, I had my, one of my parents went through a major, um, health, um, event and it felt like my world was crumbling. Um, it was super overwhelming and, Um, I think if I were to reflect on the things that help me get grounded and find my footing is one seeking therapy, um, and, and getting professional help, um, starting to build community and consistency in communities. So I had a swim group with, um, some fellow Olympians. Um, there was no competition in it. It was literally like we wake up, we roll out of bed, we meet at the pool at 7am and we swim whatever we feel like. But really it was like, it was for the locker room talk. It was for the connection. It was to dip ourselves in the water so we could start our day. But that community was huge. There was no competitiveness amongst Olympic athletes. I write. No, I'm like not in the swimming, but you know, maybe I'm going to have to call you on maybe that. in the locker room talk, but oh, okay. definitely not in the swimming. We were like wearing fins. Like we had, we had totally put on the handicap. It's okay. Adapt to swimming's okay. As yeah, well, but exactly. You, you still compete in that. Exactly. Um, but I mean, get us in a master's water polo setting or where we're playing water polo, like all competition is revved up. But, uh, you know, getting into master's water polo was part of building community. Mentors, Kim, you were a mentor of mine and finding and seeking out mentors massive in learning, um, you know, and being exploring and being exposed to potentially what's next. And, you know, just having someone who is sitting alongside of you in those um, moments of trying on those different identities and explore and experiencing that grief. Um, mentors were huge um, and movement, making sure that I was still moving. And that even just relationship with exercising and movement has evolved and changed and morphed into different things. I mean, I'm still kind of thinking like, what's fun for me? And and for me, the motivation is like, okay, I'm not going to train six and a half hours a day, six days a week. Like I used to, I'm not going to do the same swim sets, but like, where does my heart want to go? I want to jump in a pool and swim some laps. Where does my heart want to go? I, I want to dance until I sweat. I want to play tennis. I want to try different things. I want to go hiking. So now I get to use movement as fun. So mentors, um, therapy, community, and movement those have been the staples that have allowed me to stay grounded um, and make it through this change. 
Did you have a vision of what retirement was going to look like for you? I mean, and it's so weird to say retirement because you were a 29 year old person who's retiring from a career they've mm-hmm. been in for 16 years already. Right. And so you have so much runway and life ahead of you. Did you have a vision of, of what it looked like before you retired? Yeah, I, I, well, I knew I was going to retire. Like I, there was my, my choice to retire, um, at the time that I did. So it was planned. Um, the retirement was planned. The steps after retirement, maybe it wasn't so planned, but yeah, like my vision was like, Oh, I'm going to work for this company. I've been talking to a little bit while I um, have been playing water polo. I'm going to work for them. It's going to be awesome. It'll be my dream job. I'll work with them forever. Um, and that's it. That's what's next for Cami. What a small way of thinking, right? Um, so much learning to come, and that was not even close to how it unraveled. <laughs> You've been engrossed in in, in something for, for so long. I, I don't see how you could have not have another vision of what you what you had though, because yes, it's what per, I knew. It's what you knew, right? Your perspective was always had been in sport and and competing in sport, and it's like okay, now I got to figure this out, and this is what I know. Yeah, and the idea of like really like, I mean, I got through some rough teams, rough coaches, rough seasons, and I never gave up. So this idea of trying on these new roles or identities, um, and being able to have the clarity of understanding when you are saying you had enough, you're choosing to walk away for it, or it's not for you. I thought what was not for me was me giving up. And it was simply like, I haven't land, I haven't arrived to what is my next lane or adventure yet. Um, and so this isn't giving up. This actually is just saying like, this isn't for me. And that I hadn't, I hadn't developed that muscle yet. Um, and I had to do that through that time of transition. I think early on in your transition, you did suffer from, from some depression, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and got pretty low. Yep. Right. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. Um, definitely. I think, you know, uh, six months after to a year, it was hard to wake up. I didn't have a, a job to go to. I didn't have anywhere to be. And so, I mean, that felt really disorienting. And, and um, I mean, it was just enough to kind of get out of bed and look myself in the face and take a shower and decide, like, I'm going to get dressed today to do what? Like... <laughs> nothing, you know? And so it was easy to kind of slip into the patterns of just, you know, I was overscheduling myself because I was afraid to be alone. Um, I was, you know, and that, that led into the, the evenings and the nights of just like, so I would be busy hanging out with people all day, making sure that I was always had something to do. I'd party all night. I'd get, you know, crummy sleep. I was drinking and, you know, like just actually probably living the life that I would have at 20 or 21. Uh, right. I was like, say. yeah, right. at, at 29. Um, and just, you know, celebrating, I just won a gold medal. And so there's events and things to do. Um, but there was no routine. There was no structure. There was no grounding in that. Um, and it was at a time where like, I wanted my boyfriend at the time to take away the pain. 
and tell me what to do. Someone freaking tell me what to do. I w- was terrified of making a decision. I was terrified of being alone. Well, you, I mean, it goes back to being an athlete, right? You show yeah. up, you show up to practice. You, you know what that practice is going to yep. be. You know what you're going to have to wear in the pool. Mm-hmm. You know all this stuff and everything's kind of done for you. Yep. You just have to go out and perform. Yep. And now you're out in the real world having to do everything on your own now. Yeah. Yeah. And so I think, um, I wanted, I wanted someone to tell me what to do. I wanted someone to tell me it was okay. I wanted someone to like put on that new identity that was going to feel right for me. And I, I put that on my boyfriend at the time. I put that on my parents. Um, I, you know, like a little bit, put that on some friends and slow dripped it to some teammates. But that was like, not, I mean, really the burden was on my boyfriend and my parents at the time. Um, and it just led to fight after fight after fight and friction. And, you know, because I think both my parent and my boyfriend loved me so deeply and wanted to take the pain that I was experiencing away, but I was the one who had to do it. And there was a moment where I was just, I was feeling low. I grabbed some dinner. I drove to the beach, was staring out at the ocean. Um, I had my mom messaging me and I, I remember telling her, I was like, I don't want to do this. And she was like, do what? And I was like, I don't want to do this life. Like I have no income. I have no health insurance. I have no boyfriend. Um, I can barely pay my rent right now because you know, like I, I'm not, I don't have any source of income. I've got no direction, no meaning, no purpose. Like what's the point here? Um, and that's, you know, that thought in itself scared me enough to know that like my mom wasn't going to fix it. My boyfriend wasn't going to fix it. I was the one responsible to start taking these steps forward. And that's when the first call and introduction to my therapist happened. Um, and that was the day that I, you know, found my footing and was able to start kind of climbing up. It's, it's interesting that you figured that out so quickly that you couldn't project that upon somebody else. Mm -hmm to fix you, that, that you knew it was going to have to be you to do that. Yeah. Uh, how did you come, how did you come to that realization? I know you just told the story about sitting at the beach and so on and so forth. And, mm-hmm. and but I just don't get that it probably just popped into your head Yeah. that you maybe knew all along, but it just took you to get to where your back was against the wall to say, okay, now I need help. I think it was a lot of deep discussion and a lot of like, uh, arguments with, the people closest to me and, you know, like me kind of throwing the ask out onto my parents and them being like, you know, they didn't know how to solve it as much as they wanted to, or, you know, arguments with my boyfriend and, you know, I mean, this was a lot of self-reflection and a lot of wondering and, 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 you know, in those conversations, but they would go in circles and I'd throw it on them and they couldn't catch it. So had you done that as an athlete, as an Olympic athlete and so on and so forth, had those discussions in your head and and had done some self-discovery before in that way and Mm -hmm. kind of trying to figure out who you were at that moment or who who you wanted to be and and so on and so forth. I mean, this was not a new exercise to you, was it? At the time? Well, and I think it was even more like, what do I do? Tell me what to do. And nobody could tell me what to do. Right. So you had to figure it out on your own then or or nobody, it wasn't going to get figured out. I just realized that my questions and the pushing and the wondering wasn't being met. And it's really uncomfortable to hang in the air like that. And so it was enough of like pushing on them, 
and they weren't pushing back. They just, there was just nothing to give back other, other than their ears. Um, and again, I was asking for them to create, find the solution, um, in, in the words that I was sharing with them. And they simply were like, you know, like what they were giving me wasn't like good, not good enough, but it like, it wasn't meeting me. Um, and so I just kind of felt like I was hanging out there by myself and I was like, I don't want to feel this way anymore. But at least you had their love and support though. At least you absolutely. felt Absolutely. Right. Okay. Absolutely. But I'm saying like, I have so much compassion and so much empathy for my boyfriend at the time and my parents for their courage and how they showed up and tried to meet me in that space. Because it, as hard as it was for me, it was equally as hard for them. I want Dana to talk a little bit about uh, the, the therapy approach to mm -hmm. that. Um, in previous podcasts, we've, we've talked about how some therapists will pathologize you, right, mm -hmm. in that way and, and, and kind of make it when you come in and say, well, I have this issue or I have this problem, they're right, yeah, you do have a problem and it's you, right? Um, and, and Dana eloquently talks about kind of his style of, th of therapy and, and, and what works within his practice of of making it more of an art. So I'm, I'm kind of interested in, in Dana's perspective. I'm going to answer your question, but maybe somewhat indirectly, because it sounds like you had a crisis of a loss of faith in mm. a certain way. I don't know if you've ever looked at it from that perspective, because when you're connected to your intuition on a really deep level, and again, this is um, my belief system that... Mm. That I, I look at your your intuition as the voice of God that lives inside of you. And mm -hmm. I'm not talking about a religious God. I'm just talking about however you might want to define that. And that whatever questions and, and uh, inspiration and, and information that you might need, that you learned how to tap into that at a very early age. Mm -hmm. And you had a lot of faith in yourself in that way. And all of a sudden, the world's upside down and you can't rely on your faith the way that you used to. Mm -hmm. So what it seems like to me is that you had a crisis where you lost your faith and you didn't, you didn't know what to do with yourself, that you were really very much lost. Mm -hmm. and, and you looked to other people to, to, uh, to tell you um, sort of what the answer was. And then eventually it sounds like you got to a place where you were able to uh, tap into your own inner resilience and faith again. Mm -hmm. Is that a fair way yeah, to describe it? That definitely lands. And I think even like earlier in our discussion is like fear has always clouded that intuition or that Absolutely. connection as it does for everyone. And I was riddled with it. Right. How could you not be? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I'm wondering, did anybody ever sort of introduce that notion to you that, that this was not a, like, what do I do with myself, but how do I reconnect with myself in a way where I can have faith in myself again and feel really deeply connected to myself regardless of what I'm, how I'm performing in the world? Yeah, I think, yes, maybe not specifically in those words, but just um, learning how to create space and grace and acceptance right. of where we're at at right. the moment. Right. Um, because I was, in my mind, needing to be everywhere but where I was. Right. Um, so just landing in it, sitting in the emotion, feeling it, stop running from it, um, mm -hmm. but just allowing that space to be okay. I was never told right. that was okay. Right. You know, and, and I was in such a forward thinking, um, like I was just like, what does the future hold? That's what I was pressing right. on my support team. Right. And so they were trying to solve for like, okay, what does the future hold? So they weren't right. present with me either. They were trying to solve for what I was trying to solve for because that's what I was asking for. Yeah. You, you make an important point because we've talked about this in, in self-examination. Really the important point is sitting in your shit. Yeah. Right. You can't be. 10 miles 
50 miles down the road, right? Mm -hmm. You have to sit in your shit and you have to feel what it feels like. And you have to work through those emotions to be able to get that clarity that you need that's sustainable to move forward. Right. And I think in my fear, I was abandoning myself. I was trying to get to this future self that wasn't there and I needed to show up for myself. Um, and that was the first step of, of that day where I was like, wow, like I'm, I'm out here hanging by myself. This is terrifying. This is uncomfortable. And I got to figure out like, I think I need help. <laughs> I need support. I need someone to meet me here. You know, did the person that you see help you rediscover your faith in yourself? Yes, I would say so. That's what it sounds like. Yeah. Because, um, again, we can not handle almost anything, but almost anything. Mm -hmm. If we don't feel like we have to do it alone. Yep. And a lot of times, you know, people, we all have answers for each other about what, like if I did everything everybody told me to do because of my health problems, mm -hmm. I go to a different doctor every day. There's not enough days right. in, in the year to get, to go to all the people that I've been told I should go see in order for, you know, to help whatever it is that ails me. Mm -hmm. None of that has been helpful at all. What, what, what helps me the most is to know that I'm not alone yep. in my pain and whatever that might be. And that, and that people feel connected to me and, and, the, and they can tell that I'm suffering, but they're not trying to make it go away to make themselves feel better. Right. And right. I, and, and I'm assuming that your parents, and this is what parents do. I'm a parent. I would do anything to save my children from pain. Yes. And a lot of times that prevents them from discovering the solution that they need to come to. Yes. And, and it's not about them. It's about me feeling terrified that my, my children are suffering. Mm -hmm. So um, it, it's really lovely to see that you were able to re regain your faith. At least yes. that's what it sounds like. Yeah, absolutely. And I think um, you hit the nail on the head with my parents wanting to take away the pain and finding a solution for me. And I think that's really common absolutely. in athletes who are going through transition to feel um, distant, disconnected or friction with their close support teams because, you know, or support groups, because that's, that's what I experience is actually quite common, you know, to a lot of, a lot of that. And again, I feel for families and, and those close to athletes who are going through transition. Um, and yeah, I think, you know, it, I, some of the most powerful stuff within, um, my sessions with my therapist was just her accepting me. And I'm like, Oh, we're cool here. Like uh -huh. I'm not a total mess up, you know, like I'm okay right here. And she's like, yeah, you're okay. I was like, okay. Well, I mean, that illustrates <laughs> the point that Kim was making is that, you know, so many people I see go to therapy. They believe there's something wrong with them. Mm -hmm. And the therapist agrees. Mm. They diagnose yep. you come up with a terrible term that makes you sound like you're, like you're crazy. Yep. And then we come up with a treatment plan to heal what ails you. And to me, it's just so disrespectful because it doesn't take into consideration that you're actually a human being right and that you're suffering right and you don't need to be diagnosed or, or told there's something wrong with you mm -hmm. what your therapist told you is that actually you're you're pretty cool just yeah you are right now yes and it's not based on how you perform in the world mm -hmm. you don't have to be a, a gold medal olympian in order for people to love you and to be connected to you right they love what you've done mm -hmm. but it's it's you, but it's not you at the same time. It's what you're That's capable right. of. That's right, yep. But that frees you up to figure out what other stuff you might be capable of that mm -hmm. might bring you a different type of joy and, and, a, and a sense of fulfillment because you can't do what you used to do in order to get that feeling of, of um, I, don't, I can't even imagine how wonderful it would feel. Yeah. Uh, you know, to be in a situation like that, to achieve the ultimate in whatever it is you're doing. Mm -hmm. I mean, to me, you know, if I could just surf on a really good wave and not fall down, it was yep. wonderful. Yes. Yes. <laughs> no. It, 
Absolutely. So, um, and I think just the, the space, the permission, um, the space and the permission and the pacing that I received through therapy was really powerful during that time. And if I can create space permission and pacing for the athletes or individuals that I'm working for or working with is, is that I can get a high, I can get a high through making those connections because as much as it was about playing water polo and putting the ball in the back of the neck, net it was a lot about the connections i was making sure. and like making those micro breakthroughs well you're showing the people that you work with what it feels like to be loved mm. and lots of times people have no idea what that feels like yeah because our our upbringing is so performance oriented that we only feel approved of not necessarily loved when we accomplish what our parents or whoever mm-hmm. the expectations come from achieve but that's not the same thing as love and it sounds like when you approach people it's not just about their performance, but it's it's teaching them how to um, how to feel what it's like to to maybe love yourself a little bit mm-hmm. and to feel love from you because you're not just focusing on their performance. You're That's trying right. to help them feel good about themselves as people. Yeah, which is hugely lacking in our world. Yes, That's for sure, in a big way. So, your five year old self or five years out from retirement? Yes. <laughs> who's Cammy Craig, the person now? Yeah. Well, I think, you know, that's a process that's always evolving and I'm always discovering. Um, but I, it's been pretty cool to get to know myself, um, and be able to, I think, you know, as an athlete and especially in the pocket of training for 13 years, of the national team, there's like a hardening that happens, you know, there's like, you, you kind of have to like hold, you can't unravel completely, And so I think that there are softer parts of me that have, um, that there's space now to come to the surface. The armor's off. Yeah, the armor's off. And I get to choose when I want to put it on rather than having to like sleep in it, right? And like, I'm like, the alarm's going off, like the armor's on, let's go, you know? Um, So I think I get to choose when I want to armor up and and really feel safe and secure and in my softness and openness and and vulnerability. Um, You know, I feel a lot more connected uh, to myself. Um, there's more time for self-care and curiosity and, um, you know, more time to explore different things. You know, I've done therapy, I've done retreats, I've done mindfulness practice, you know, all of the trainings that I've done really have allowed me to experience them so that I can teach them or use them in, um, my coaching and mentoring practices. And, um, I really think the work that I've, I've done with myself and the self-discovery and just being open and curious about different things that maybe necessarily like I didn't have time or space or actually care to do when I was training full-time. Like I was cool. Like I had the team, I had the workouts and all that stuff, but, um, you know, I think I'm, I'm an understanding person. I think that, you know, growing up with learning disabilities really has provided me with an openness and a non being non-judgmental. Um, I think that I'm still possess a warriorship and, um, a like elite level of performance. There's still a lot of rev and competitiveness in me. Um, but in a way where it can be fun and a part of me and flow through me rather than all of me. Um, 
which is, it's just been fun to experience, but it's been fun to get, getting to know myself and, and trying new things. It's been an honor for me to, to know you for, for all these years and, and through your transition out of sport as well. You, you, you're very vulnerable. You're very genuine. Uh, you're you. very, you're very transparent. And I think the areas that you're working in now, not only with rise athletes and, and, and my daughter was a, mm -hmm. a benefic benefited from, from your uh, mentorship while she was a volleyball player at Santa Barbara high. Um, and, and I know that she valued that relationship uh, when she would race home to get on the phone with you Aww, at, at yeah. that time. So I think that, you know, if, if we found our tribe or we found our niche, I think you found your niche. You know, um, again, that we think sometimes athletes have to, to fall back into athlete careers even mm. when they're done playing sport. But but again, with that genuineness and, and just being that caring individual that you are, um, not only in the corporate world will benefit from it, but these young athletes will benefit from it as well. We've got just a couple more minutes here to, to, to talk to you. And, and so I'm kind of interested in... in as you continue through this self-discovery process, and, and obviously you've, you've told our audience how beneficial that has been for you, not only as an Olympic athlete, but, but in your post-career endeavors as well, and, and trying to make it through life and, and getting up every day and, and taking on this world. What are a couple of your biggest takeaways that, that you would want people to know from that? Yeah, I think... Um I'd love to just kind of borrow from your words of faith. Like I think having faith in the process, I think um, knowing that self-discovery, like you're the only one that can do it for yourself. Um, and, and what I mean that is like, you're the only one that can show up and start putting in the work to learn more about yourself, to, to do the healing, um, to do the, the exploring, to be curious about yourself. No one, people can do it for you all day around you, but, but you're the one that needs to show up to make, to make change. Um, and that I think community is so, so valuable. I know that we've all been impacted and affected by that in this last year of COVID, but just connection and community, um, and, and movement. In, in any sort of level, I think those takeaways, I'm like, if I can stay grounded in, in my own self-care and my own self-discovery in my community and in my movement, I'm like, it seems so simple. Just three things, just do that. Right. <laughs> but I would say like, I would have a grounded and, um, a fulfilling life, you know? Well, that's very well said. And it's been an honor and a privilege to have you here. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. So that was a very insightful hour with uh, with Cammie Craig. And, and I know, Dana, she made uh, a, a couple of points that you want to discuss a little bit further before we close out this episode. You know, Kim, um, the thing that I noticed most clearly in what she was talking about is that at a very young age, she was able to connect with her intuition in such a powerful way. And uh, that's fairly remarkable for a young person to, to trust their intuition at such an early age. And um, it seemed like when she had to leave being an athlete, leave that career behind, that she actually had a crisis of faith as much as anything else. And that as soon as she rediscovered her intuition and her faith, 
she, she has found a path for herself again. And I just wanted to, to reiterate to everyone how, again, how much you and I think or, or feel about being connected to your intuition and how valuable it is that we have a very sacred relationship with that a part of ourselves. And she is someone who absolutely demonstrates that uh, as profoundly as anybody I've ever met. I, I agree with you. She definitely has, has found her path and, and self-examination was an important piece for her to, to, to be on that journey. And, and again, um, um, we appreciate her candidness and, and transparency and her, her genuineness. And uh, we'll see you on the next episode. We appreciate our listeners and are interested in your comments and suggestions. Feel free to email us at fearmeoutpodcast at gmail.com. If you are interested in becoming a sponsor for this podcast, please email us at fearmeoutpodcast at gmail.com. Thank you for listening. See you next time.